I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, author of Hiding in Plain Sight, Sarah Kenzior, and the paperback volume is now out. Uh, Sarah, you've joined us before on the podcast and on TV. We welcome you again. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Sarah, how would you assess President Biden's anti-corruption agenda so far? I mean, honestly, it's been pretty weak. There have been other things that the Biden administration has been doing that are very good, like the vaccine rollout, for example. And I understand why that has to be the priority because we're in a public health crisis. But the thing about corruption is that if you don't address it aggressively and early, all of these other good initiatives that they're trying to do are going to be destroyed if the corrupt actors are able to regain power. And so I'm frustrated that there hasn't been more um, aggressive investigation and prosecution of, for example, the people uh, who masterminded the January 6th attack, the Trump administration uh, profiteering off of COVID and allowing COVID to spread, as well as all of the other uh, you know, crimes of that administration, obstruction of justice, abuse of the pardon power. Um, you, you can't ignore it. If you ignore it, you're establishing a precedent for anyone who comes next. And so I'm, I'm concerned about the seeming lack of urgency they're expressing. If there were to be a change that was discernible to you, where would it start? It would start at um, a rigorous investigation and prosecution of the recurring people who are behind multiple crimes related to the Trump administration. And this would be people like Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn. I mean, many of these people were already indicted and then pardoned by Trump when he abused the pardon power. But they were involved in Trump's illicit collaboration with Russia and other uh, outside actors um, to manipulate the results of the 2016 election, um, or at least the process of the 2016 election. They were also involved in orchestrating the January 6th attack. Um, they're linked to multiple uh, organized crime groups around the world. They've been involved in, you know, at the least dirty politics for numerous decades. You know, you see someone like Roger Stone as a recurring character in basically every GOP crime. Uh, the same is true to some extent with Bill Barr, uh, when they start targeting those guys, instead of going after some random person who got heated up reading like Lynn Wood's uh, Twitter account and deciding to join QAnon and deciding to storm the Capitol, like most of the focus has been on low level actors like that who really aren't the people behind the scenes. Um, and one thing Biden can do, I think, uh, is remove Christopher Ray as the head of the FBI um, because he is not pursuing them aggressively at all. And he was a party to uh, a lot of Trump's most dangerous and destructive and illegal actions. He at the very least tolerated them. I don't understand um, why he's still there. So are there folks in Congress who you think can elevate this issue? Where is the public pressure going to come from to demand, if not formally a Truth and Reconciliation Committee or Commission the necessary steps are taken um, to ensure that there is 
a robust anti-corruption agenda, that those prosecutions do occur, and that we protect, most importantly, even if they don't occur, that we protect our country from ever being violated constitutionally in the way we were. Yeah, I mean, I think a number of representatives are interested in this, um, basically all from the Democratic Party, because the GOP is, you know, an authoritarian party, they're falling in line, they're defending the undefendable, they're defending sedition. And I think it's because the party apparatus itself is so deeply corrupt, um, you know, through dark money, through complicity in, in the Trump administration and other actions that they're, you know, I think even those who are of conscience to some degree feel trapped by that. Um, I'm disappointed in the Democrats. I think they should have made the impeachment, the second impeachment of Trump more expansive. And I think they should have then after that concluded, immediately moved to, um, you know, a rigorous investigatory committee that provides daily updates um, to the public about this attack. Um, you know, when we were attacked on 9-11, um, you know, which obviously is, is different in many ways, it's still, it's an attack on our country. And this is also an attack on our capital. Uh, we heard about it round the clock, you know, for years on end, and it completely changed our country. And it changed a lot of policies, you know, mostly for the worst in my view. In this case, it's almost as if people want to memory hole it, even though members of Congress themselves were the object of attack. And they're still in danger because the people who organize this still wield tremendous amounts of power, um, you know, and are still set loose thanks to Trump's pardons. Um, so I don't understand their reluctance. Um, I mean, maybe to some degree it can be explained by the fact that there are so many other crises happening simultaneously. Um, you know, COVID being obviously the biggest one, but also Trump gutted our institutions. Uh, you know, he gutted the FBI, he gutted the Justice Department, he gutted the State Department and so on. And so the Biden administration has to try to, you know, kind of rebuild from scratch. What I worry about is running out of time and this becoming one of these big, massive uh, crimes and scandals that just gets buried in the past. And in my book, Hiding in Plain Sight, I go into what happens when you do that, about how it creates this reoccurring cast of criminal characters, people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and cleanup guy Bill Barr, who appear in administration after administration because of this urge to just memory whole things and to look the other way and say, oh, bygones, we need to just move on. Like, you can't move on from this. It, it just returns. Um, and at this point, our institutions are so decimated that I worry we can't recover uh, unless there's really honest and, and vigorous attempts, um, you know, to tackle this. When you say honest and rigorous attempts to tackle this, you're talking about the kind of democratic safeguards that were not in place. And the Biden administration views itself as the solution or the cure when we know that in fact it is systemic and systematic and it the problems that were unleashed over decades and most specifically during the Trump administration are not disappearing do you feel as though um it will it will require more acts of domestic terrorism, uh, more acts of political violence uh, to, in order for there to be a renewal and, and for the country to form that consensus 
and act on the consensus because we've formed the consensus. We have that consensus about the malfeasance and the mismanagement of COVID, but we haven't figured out how we can achieve the structural change to enact that consensus. Yeah, that's a good question. And unfortunately, what it reminds me so much of is the issue of gun control after Sandy Hook in 2012, where people looked at that and they were like, if nothing's going to be done now, if you're going to let the massacre of, you know, five and six year old children just pass without substantial, uh, you know, gun law reform, uh, then, you know, we are lost, like our soul is lost as a country. And I feel like things like the Trump administration deliberately letting half a million Americans die, withholding medical equipment, profiteering off of that death, exalting in it, lying to the public about what to do. Like that's, you know, I mean, it's unprecedented and it's horrifying. And if that's not taken as seriously as can be, if that doesn't show the sadism and the extent to which people would abuse power, I don't know what else could. But then of course, right after that, you have the attack on the Capitol. And again, if they're not going to take these militant, seditious groups seriously, the complicity of the GOP with those groups seriously, because people like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, they were working directly with the Proud Boys, with the Oath Keepers, um, with the more violent elements within QAnon. And they announced all this beforehand. I mean, it was all out in the open. Like my podcast, Gaslit Nation, announced a special about the January 6th violence on January 5th, because we knew this was going to happen. You know, and if I I knew then obviously the FBI and other officials should have known and done things to, to prevent it. And they did not. And so I, I don't feel like further acts of violence or further atrocities are going to be what finally gets people to see the light and make changes. I think it's, it's comparable to gun control. Like they're refusing to make those changes. And I don't fully understand what the barrier is beyond, I guess, the more generous interpretation of the administration is overwhelmed by crises, you know, by a, a, a pandemic that really has no parallel. But I mean, they, they need to do something like, because we don't have all the time in the world. They're going to lose the House very likely in 2022 if they don't pass um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if they don't kill the filibuster. They have a very limited window in, ma- in which to make these big institutional changes. And I don't think they're being, um, you know, as assertive as they should be in doing so. Uh, I don't know if they don't fathom what's fully at stake, or I don't know if they're stymied, like maybe they don't have the leverage, Um, maybe they're stuck because, you know, these are very deeply rooted problems that deal with incredibly powerful people, uh, both within our country and outside it, and they're malevolent actors. But that's, um, they need to at least try. It's better to try and fail than to just sit back and pretend things are okay and not do anything. Like I would rather see them try rigorously and absolutely bomb at doing so than to just um, kind of pretend that none of this is actually happening. Which leads me once again to ask about the necessity of grassroots or legislative momentum to propel the country towards the kinds of actions that are required. And even though the criminal behavior of the Trump administration is far more excessive than that of the Nixon administration, if you look at it holistically, there was no insistence from the get-go of this new Congress or new administration that we are going to clean house uh, or that we are going to deploy the most 
intensive anti-corruption programs and history. Um, so where do you have the hopefulness? Because I know you and I both agree that there is a missing cognizance of the urgency of this, but where do you have the most hopefulness either locally where you are in St. Louis and in the state of Missouri or nationally speaking of hope that we should have or faith that we should invest and hope is not a strategy, but that hope being something that can uh, crystallize into reform. Yeah, I definitely don't have it in Missouri. I mean, if anything, Missouri is a cautionary tale. Our former governor, Eric Reitens, who was indicted twice um, for doing, among other things, tying a half-naked woman to exercise equipment in his basement and then photographing her and blackmailing her. Um, You know, and then he, he resigned as governor after that. He's now running for Senate in, you know, in the state of Missouri, and he has Trump's team helping them. And that's what happens when there's elite criminal impunity. When people get away with crimes, they just recur and recur and recur. You know, it goes back to what I was saying before. And it's very frustrating and disheartening to watch. Um, You know, I think this is more of a matter of mentality to just be, you know, very resolute, to know your moral compass, um, to not forget the victims of these situations. You know, it's not about vengeance and it's certainly not about this kind of, you know, people look at it almost like a movie, like the good guys are going to bring the bad guys down. You know, I I think we're trained to think that way by um, shows that deal with the FBI or with the police, but that's not what this is about. It's about justice for the Americans who were hurt by this administration, which, you know, you can't separate their elite criminality from the effect that it had on people on the ground, you know, from something like how they handled a pandemic, you know, it, it trickles down, it's trickled down crime, um, and it, it has real victims. And so I hope people focus on that instead of getting in drawn into these, you know, soap opera type uh, dynamics, you know, we're already seeing these attempts at rehabilitation of all of these malevolent actors, they're landing book deals, um, they're trying to, you know, rehab their image, and they're trying to make people forget. And so I guess one thing that does give me some hope in a perverse sort of way is that the Trump administration's criminality was so open, you know, I mean, that's why my book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, um, that it's extensively documented, and a lot of people documented many facets of them, you know, did deep historical work at how we got to this point. And so it is all written down. It's all there if people in positions of power within law enforcement or within the government want to use it, if they choose to be brave and actually take these people on, I think that, you know, we can get things done. But it requires honesty and it requires honesty about the um, complacency that ha- that helped cause this. And that's one thing I do worry about with Biden because, uh, you know, Trump came to power when Biden was the vice president. And there was an incredible amount of corruption uh, within the government, um, you know, not necessarily hires of the Obama administration, but, you know, just in the government in general, that wasn't taken seriously. You know, one of the most obvious cases of this is the alliance between the GOP and Russia, um, the hacks by Russia on various, um, you know, government uh, divisions, you know, including the White House, the Treasury, the State Department. I mean, 
people should have been much more prepared and they weren't prepared. They were very confident that the worst couldn't happen. And then of course the worst happened over and over. Um, so I hope that there's some humility on their, their part. I think that would go a long way. And honestly, you know, humility builds trust and we do have a great disinformation problem, but we also have a problem of broken trust and feeling people from all sides of the aisle feeling incredibly betrayed by a government that's supposed to serve them and has just hurt them. And I think if there's a sense of apology and like we realize what we've done wrong and we're going to do things better now and, and we're not going to do it that way again, that would really go a long way. I don't think that's a sign of weakness. I think that would be a sign of, of great strength if they were to do that. Sarah, we spoke on The Open Mind at a moment when the COVID-19 crisis was ravaging America. And even though there's new leadership and there are deployments of vaccines around the country, the infection rate is incredibly high. The hesitancy of a part of the public to get vaccinated will be there. The importing of virus from all around the world where the virus rages will continue. And there was a moment of realization in our first conversation many months ago in which I think we recognized the, the harm. Lori Garrett has called it pandemicide. Uh, I've even called it, and I think you would probably concur, a kind of genocide mm -hmm. in which the uh, dysfunction or even negligence of the government was a di directly correlated with deaths, directly caused deaths and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And to me, I can't live in this country without believing in reparations for this tragedy. And I use that word reparations very deliberately because of the reparations you know, in response to the violations of our constitution and reparations in response to the negligence of our government. And I don't necessarily think that you and I are, are in the majority in thinking that, you know, I don't think the country feels that it is owed reparations for what went wrong and what still is going wrong. And, and I just think that's so regrettable. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. I think it's part of a broader American culture of blaming oneself uh, for things that are structural failings. Um, you know, we've seen this with the economy, you know, for years uh, until really quite recently, people beating themselves over and over for not being able to afford basic necessities, for not being able to find a job that fits the skills or, you know, matches the money that they already invested in education, the debt that they've taken on. You know, our system spits that back and says, oh, you're just being negative. You shouldn't complain, don't have a bad attitude, or just this kind of toxic optimism of, you know, it'll work out, it'll be okay, everything is cyclical, and it, it, it doesn't make sense, you know, it's, it's built to make you look away, and then, you know, look at yourself and hate yourself for it, and I, I think a lot of the reaction um, to the pandemic that seemed so irrational comes, you know, for things like refusing to wear masks and so forth, it comes from this sense that, like, 
no one, no one cares about you. Like everyone will abandon you and everyone will blame you. If you get sick, they'll blame you if you get hurt. And so live life while you can go out while you can, you know, see your family while you can. Like it's this sense of, you know, death hovering all around you. It's also mirrored in our gun culture, you know, where people are, are paranoid and violent. Um, and then other people in response, like decide not to try to change the the root of that, but to, you know, either kind of accept it as a facet of American life or to arm up themselves. Um, it's very dangerous. You know, we are owed more. We've lost that sense of being owed more, um, you know, a long time ago. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I grew up, I'm a child of the Reagan era. It's kind of always been like this. And it's really just in recent years that I've seen the change. And I think that change is because we had a breaking point, um, you know, not quite under Trump, but a little bit beforehand. Um, and there are so many factors to this. And a lot of, you know, when you bring up reparations, you know, of course, the, the greatest need for reparations is reparations for descendants of enslaved people. And that turns into a, you know, divisive issue because of this zero sum mentality, you know, where you have white Americans saying, well, you know, what about me? My ancestors also went through a, a difficult period and, you know, they try to equate that to, you know, being enslaved and there is no, there is no equivalence. Um, and I, but, you know, I, I wish people would have more empathy for others and I wish people would have more empathy for themselves. It's very hard to get out of that habit of blaming yourself for a broken system. You know, it's a genuinely painful thing to have to endure. And so I don't know, like I have, I have sympathy for everybody, but I wish we weren't just falling back into our old habits. I wish we'd, we'd learned more from the last four years. Do you think that there's a genuine chance that with Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema in the positions they are, that for the people will pass, that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act will pass. I mean, what is your prognosis of the potential for this democratic reform? Well, that reform needs to pass or we very well may lose our democracy for generations. And if I were in the Democratic Party or somebody, you know, who had sway and influence over it, I would be doing everything I can to, you know, one, get to the bottom of why Mansion and Cinema are voting and behaving in the way they are, because it's contrary to their own self-interest. It's contrary to them retaining their positions of power. Uh, it's contrary to them, you know, fulfilling the wishes of their constituents. And so I think there's backstories behind them that haven't been fully investigated, but I would also be using every bit of leverage that I had, um, you know, whether it's getting them things they want, uh, you know, to serve their respective states or what have you. Um, you know, I, I don't understand what they're doing. Like, I, I don't understand what Manchin and Cinema are doing, but I also don't understand like what Chuck Schumer is doing, like why he can't get his caucus in line, like why the urgency of the moment, um, you know, isn't really being expressed by him because it's a very big deal. And, you know, as I've said, um, we don't have a lot of time because the GOP is passing all of these very repressive voting, uh, you know, suppression laws uh, in, in states like Georgia and, and Michigan and elsewhere that are going to make it very difficult for the Democrats to hold on to the House. And they all already lost, you know, a very large number of seats in, in the 2020 election. Um, you know, the future is not looking good. And, you know, the same goes for the filibuster and Adam Gentleson and others who are experts on the filibuster have talked at length about why it needs to go. And, you know, if Biden does want to pass this agenda, you know, which they keep trying to frame as the next new deal, as, as something that's very necessary for American progress and prosperity, they, like, this should be a top priority for them. Um, you know, there may be things going on behind the scenes that I'm not privy to, but it's been several months. And, and as I 
you know, I'm sorry to keep saying we don't have time to lose, but we, we genuinely don't. So I hope they uh, they get on that. Ultimately, the legitimacy and the upholding the constitutionality of those pieces of legislation is of the utmost importance because you can pass that legislation and the current Supreme Court can tear it asunder, can completely demolish it. Um, which leads me to ask you if you think that the democratic strategy to focus on this legislation is the right one. Is it the right one because there's still the possibility that Manchin and Cinema can get on board, whereas with the Supreme Court reform, you think that there's virtually no possibility? Or maybe it's just the right strategy in and of itself, but it doesn't address the fact that no matter whether this legislation is written severably, so to speak, with severability or not, the Supreme Court could just decide this is null. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible danger. And I think they need to be working on both these fronts. They need to pass these acts. They need to pass voter rights protection. They also should be working on expanding the Supreme Court, uh, you know, which is something Biden, I believe, is amenable to and others in his administration are. And then you see Democrats like Pelosi coming out against, you know, she also imposed impeachment. She also imposed a lot of accountability measures. And I think it's worth doing a deep dive into uh, why she is such a, a strident opponent of um, accountability and rights in our country, uh, you know, they, they need to look at the long term. You know, the Republicans are actually good at that. They began this process of decimating our democracy, uh, you know, back in the 80s under Reagan. You know, they devised an entirely new way of doing things. And, you know, movements like the Tea Party uh, chipped away at local legislatures, local courts. Uh, you know, people like McConnell uh, are very good at navigating this bureaucracy and rigging it um, to hard right interests that are, you know, anti-democratic uh, with a small d. And so the Democrats, while not in any way uh, emulating the actual policies of the Republicans, need to think tactically. They need to think, hey, you know, if this passes, what does this mean for a decade down the road, two decades down the road? Like, will we be a free country or will we be an autocracy? And what effect will it have on things like, for example, climate change, if these people, these Republicans are in charge of something like that? And so, you know, Trump was a wrecking ball for the GOP and his probably his most long lasting legacy is going to be all of these judges that he put in both on the Supreme Court, but also, you know, in um, smaller, you know, district courts and things like that, uh, these lifetime appointments and the Democrats need to, to be more serious, like spend less time on spin and positivity and, and whatnot um, and, and approach this with the vigor that they've approached the vaccination campaign. They should be vaccinating us against autocracy. They should be going in and wiping out the disease at its roots. Um, and, you know, they, they seem reluctant to confront it. They seem reluctant to name it as the monster that it is. There was all these sort of, you know, uh, we're going to pretend, try to be bipartisan. It's like, you can't be bipartisan with an authoritarian cult. Like, this is not the Republican Party of the 1960s or something. And it's ridiculous to pretend that it is. They need to take it, you know, for the danger that it is to the American people, because that's who they're supposed to be serving. With respect to universal basic income, economic security, President Biden perhaps wants to be a new deal for a new time um, and emulating LBJ or FDR in his vigorous pursuit of public policy. Uh, ethics and 
anti-corruption are part of public policy. So we've devoted some of our conversation to acknowledging that that has been neglected or ignored in the conception of, of policymaking so far. But when it comes to the question of infrastructure or expansion of affordable care and accessible care, or for that matter, an economic bill of rights, which FDR promised but never realized he died before he could, that could coexist with capitalism, the idea of having a safety net for a generation that has not had progress since Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and that is going to be absent any kind of economic security or stability. How would you assess the progress so far in his administration towards those goals? I mean, they're at least acknowledging that these problems exist. And, you know, that's an improvement from the Obama administration, which I think was much more reluctant to do so, particularly uh, with the economy. You know, I think his appointments um, are stronger, much more so than Obama's. Um, But, you know, the problem is, of course, that we've been, you know, plunged. I don't want to say we dug ourselves into a hole. We've been plunged into a hole, uh, you know, by the Trump administration, by tax laws, by endemic corruption, by decades of, of, you know, corporate crime, white collar crime going unpunished and, you know, the effects of that trickling down to the everyday citizen. Uh, the difference is, I, you know, citizens understand this and, and they're pushing for change. And I think younger generations who've never had the opportunities or the security of the baby boomer generation are particularly uh, demanding of this because survival depends on it. You know, it's not really about like making a choice or, or you know, um, choosing an ideology. It's just about how am I going to survive? How are my children going to survive? So there's great pressure um, on this legislature to do that. Even in states like mine in Missouri that always gets labeled a dark red state, you know, uh, people overwhelmingly, including the Republicans here, voted for ballot initiatives to get rid of dark money in politics, to protect labor unions, to raise the minimum wage. You know, those are traditionally thought of as progressive policies, but they're really just common sense policies. And so the Biden administration, you know, they need to understand that. And I think their view is that they are going to, you know, create this infrastructure program, create more jobs, you know, more money for everyday people and so forth. And that will somehow just kind of get rid of the rising tide of fascism because, you know, fascism obviously uh, taps into the, the great dissatisfaction of the population. That's not going to be sufficient. It's what they should just be doing anyway as competent legislators, but it's not going to get rid of this deeply corrupt, deeply racist, uh, and now, you know, incredibly brazen movement to overturn democracy. So as I've said before, they really need to be operating on all fronts, full force. Sarah Kenzior, I urge all of our listeners to check out both of your books. Of course, Hiding in Plain Sight was most prescient and precocious and uh, it is important to acknowledge those journalists um, and political scientists, but, but particularly those in the public sphere uh, who recognized with the most clarity the threats we were facing. Sarah Kenzior, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me.